And I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 17. We are nearing the end of the book of Revelation. I say this with great reverence. We're getting close to the good parts. Uh, It's all good. It's the Word of God. But we're getting nearer to the parts where we get to see the glory that is ours or will be ours in heaven. But for now, we are in one of the more difficult and challenging portions of this letter. As we've studied the, the book of Revelation, we've identified five key enemies of God and of the church. We've seen the, the, the dragon who is Satan. We've seen the beast coming out of the sea who is also called the Antichrist, and the beast coming out of the earth who is called the false prophet. We have seen the people who bear the mark of the beast, also called the dwellers of this earth. And this evening we're going to be looking at Babylon, also called the great harlot. Now, I've said many times, you probably uh, can, can recite this, I kind of hope you can, is that Revelation is organized around seven cycles of judgment or seven depictions of the judgment of God. The first cycle is, uh, focuses on the seven seals in chapters 4 through chapter 8. The second cycle is, uh, involves the seven trumpets of judgment in chapters 8 through 11. And then the third cycle is that symbolic, uh, focus on the symbolic figures of the harvest and the sickle that harvests the earth in chapters 12 through 14. So now as we're getting near, near to the end of our study, the last four cycles are compressed a bit more, uh, and we see the defeat and the destruction of all five of these enemies I've just identified. In the fourth cycle, the seven bulls of the wrath of God, or the seven plagues uh, in chapters 15 and 16, uh, depict God's wrath being poured out on the dwellers of this earth, those people who bear the mark of the beast. And the fifth cycle, uh, we see the, the judgment of God falling on the great harlot who is Babylon. And we'll be looking at that tonight in chapter 17, but primarily in chapter 18 next week when we see the destruction of Babylon. And then the sixth cycle in chapter 19 is what's called the great white horse judgment, where Jesus comes and he defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet in this great final battle. And then the seventh cycle in chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment where Satan, the dragon, is finally defeated and cast into hell for all eternity. Now, again, the way we are interpreting the book of Revelation is not a chronological sequence. Uh, uh, Interpreters have called it progressive parallelism. You find these parallel depictions of God's judgment uh, getting more and more specific, getting more and more uh, intense as we get toward that seventh cycle. But it depicts the judgment of God as it falls on each one of His enemies. Now, At first read, Revelation might appear confusing, but when we see this this pattern, when we see this plan unfolding, we find this marvelous organization, this marvelous unity to the book. Now, last message, a week ago, we looked at the seven bowls of God's wrath in chapter 16, and we, we talked for some time about the nature of God's wrath, that final outpouring of His wrath on corrupt people, on the wicked who have rejected God those dwellers of the earth who bear the mark of the beast. 
In chapter 16, it ends with the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so tonight we're going to look more closely in greater depth at Babylon the great. And I want you to see the wickedness that uh, that attaches to, or that flows from Babylon, the emphasis over and over on her sexual immoralities. Chapter 17, we find a frightening description of Babylon the Great. I've entitled this message, Journey to Babylon, as the angel says, come and I will show you Babylon. Next week, we will see the complete destruction of Babylon the Great in chapter 18. So, would you follow as I read Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, I'll read the entire chapter. Revelation 17, 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk." And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it has seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immoralities. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, I dare say this is not a cheery chapter or a cheery message, but there's hope here for the child of God and encouragement 
for those of us who are, who can say, I'm confident my name has been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. So let's look, first of all, the introduction of Babylon, this, this angel, this messenger, one of the angels who poured out the seven bowls of God's wrath comes in verse 1 and says to John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. That is an indication that whatever he's going to show John is not going to be very good for Babylon. It is her judgment. The angel carries away John into the wilderness, and he sees this, this vile woman. Uh, and as we'll see, her description is vile. It's repulsive to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in purity. But to the dwellers of the earth, her appearance is enticing. It's seductive. It's an alluring. And we must guard our hearts that we not be drawn away by such enticements. Verse 5 tells us that this woman, this detestable woman, is Babylon the Great. Now, I've said before, there is an emphasis in Revelation on contrasts and counterfeits. Uh, Satan counterfeits the things of God, and there's a contrast drawn between the two in the book of Revelation. So, in Revelation, we find the beast who's the Antichrist. We find the false prophet who is uh, the the, the beast out of the, the earth, and we find the dragon who is Satan. And they form, as it were, this counterfeit trinity. And the 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 influence of Babylon is to cause the dwellers of the earth to worship, not the Lord Jesus, the one true God who created heaven and earth, but rather to, to engage in the false worship of this unholy trinity, this counterfeit trinity. And so Babylon is, as it were, a, a counterfeit of the church, devoted to the worship of the counterfeit trinity, seducing people away from the truth of God and His church to this false and idolatrous worship. And so the corruption of Babylon, as we've read, this, the, the, this cup of her abominations and immoralities is contrasted with the church who are clothed in robes of pure white, representing pure and perfect righteousness, the righteous acts of the saints. The, church, the, the, the Babylon is a prostitute, and the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And so, here we find this description. She is, in verse 1, a great prostitute, a seductress. She's also, it says that she sits on many waters, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment. In verse 2, it tells us that the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her. The NIV translates that word adultery. And the word behind it is the Greek word pornia. It's the word we get pornography from. Graphe is writing, it's writing about pornia, about immorality, sexual immorality. And that pornia is this large umbrella term that covers all such sexual sin and impurity. Verse 2 tells us the dwellers of the earth are drunk with the wine of her pornia, of her sexual immorality. And this woman is depicted in verse 3 as sitting on the, 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 the scarlet beast who is full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And we read in verse 4 that she's luxuriously dressed, wearing purple and scarlet and the gold and jewels and pearls. She's, she's glamorous and she's gaudy. 
and she holds in her hand this golden cup, which on the outside appears lovely and appealing and, and, and attractive, but inside it is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The Lord seems to be hammering away that, that theme over and over and over is characterizing the corruption of Babylon. There's one more, excuse me, there's a title, verse 5 tells us, a title on her forehead, uh, this great mystery that says, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Not only is she depicted as a prostitute, she's the mother of prostitutes. Not only is she guilty of sexual immorality and abominations, she is perpetuating that throughout the world. She's a pernicious and wicked influence on the world around us. One more feature we find in verse 6, we see that she is drunk, not with the wine of immorality here, but with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. So John uh, is going with the angel into the wilderness, and he sees this, this hideous creature. And to the saints of God, as we read this, she is grotesque. But in real life, in real time, as men and women look upon the influence that is called Babylon, she's appealing, she's enticing, and I dare say for many, she is irresistible as they are drunk on the wine of her wickedness. So, who is this harlot? Who is Babylon the great that is being depicted here? Now, first of all, we we look at the, the beast. We've talked about the beast Uh, the Antichrist. He's ferocious. He's violent. He's imitating. He persecutes the people of God. He makes war on the church, on God's people. But the harlot is presented as luxurious, glamorous, alluring. Rather than crushing God's people, she seeks to seduce God's people and all of the people of the earth. She seeks to seduce the kings of the earth and the dwellers on the earth, and even, if it were possible, the people of God. The beast persecutes and kills those who follow after the lamb, but this prostitute, Babylon, seeks to seduce people away from following after the lamb. She, uh, the harlot Babylon really it refers to the, this value system of the world that is utterly opposed to the law of God, to the righteousness of God, and to the truth of God. It's the power, and it's the pomp, and the pleasures. It's the the luxuries, and the lusts of the earth. It's the excesses, and the indulgences of every form that exists in this world. And people of the earth, dwellers of the earth, are portrayed as drunk or intoxicated with the stuff of the world. And they're utterly blind to what is real and what is true and what's truly significant. They're destroying their lives, they're wasting their lives on toxic trifles. The world, Babylon, holds out to them these promises of satisfaction and fulfillment, and they're empty and they're hollow. We watch commercials and, 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 and the ad is, this product is what you really need. This will make your life full and joy, enjoyable and satisfying. And if you really want life that is life, you need to get on down and purchase this item, whatever it may be. A number of years ago, I was working at BMW, and they rolled out their Story of Joy marketing campaign. Big sign in the, in the plant saying, BMW, joy and driving. 
I think they, they, they actually rolled it out and for the Olympics. And the marketing vice president said this. Now listen closely. He said, the story of joy encapsulates the sentiment shared throughout BMW. That we're more than a car company. We are creators of joy. What? We're more than a car company. We are creators of joy. Now, I would say they could be creators of fun. It's fun to drive them, believe me. I got to drive a few of them. But they are not creators of joy, and if that's their outlook, then they are simply a tool of Babylon. They're telling people joy can be found in an item, which then becomes an idol. Now, I would hasten to say it's not a sin to drive a BMW or any kind of nice car. It's not a sin to have nice stuff. Paul tells the rich of this world not to put their hope in the uncertainty of riches, but to be rich in kindness and generosity. But he doesn't tell them what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. That was for that one man who had a, whose heart was in the grip of idolatry. But Paul doesn't tell the rich of this world, stop being rich. He just says, don't set your heart on the riches of this world, but be rich toward God. So, this, this mindset that, that turns things that are legitimate into idols, that turns things that, that God gives us for our enjoyment, but we look to them and we believe that they will actually give us joy. It's not a sin to have things, but it is a sin to root our joy in those things. And pretty soon those possessions begin to possess us. The world says, a little more stuff, a few more trinkets. Gather for yourself more pleasure, more uh, power, more glory. And, and the worldling dives in with all the faith of a devoted believer. He is convinced he is on the path to satisfaction, to fulfillment. He is worshiping at the temple of the harlot, Babylon the Great. Babylon is depicted here as a cheap counterfeit of the true joy that only Jesus can deliver us. Fern Poitras in his commentary says, in the new Jerusalem, God grants us the pleasure of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the wealth of streets paved with gold, the fame of being known by God and having his name on our foreheads. He grants us the power of the throne, the health of no sickness or death, and the beauty of the new city's architecture. And then he says this. He says the objects of our lust are only tawdry counterfeits of what God has created out of his own bounty and what he will bestow in unfathomable fullness. Peter speaks of an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, his child. And Babylon says, oh, I've got an inheritance now. You don't have to wait till heaven. You can have it right now. And it's like when Satan said to Jesus, if you just cast yourself down here, if you'll just bow down to me, if you'll just do what I say, you don't have to go to the cross. You can have the glory of this world coming to you right now. The problem is this world coming to him would not be delivered from their sin. Satan promises a shortcut, which is truly only a short circuit 
to the joy which God alone can give us. Babylon. Remember in 1 John chapter 2, John speaks of the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. He says, don't love the world or the things of the world because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. That's what Babylon is, the lust of the flesh and of the eyes and the pride of life. She promises satisfaction. She promises fulfillment and all the glitz and glory that she promises are just empty and hollow promises. They're pipe dreams. So that's Satan's lying strategy. He's a counterfeiter. He makes all sorts of promises to snare our soul, to draw us in, and then leaves us empty. Uh, more and more men are, are, are drunk with the wine of her sexual perversion and immorality. And the more that happens, the more their hearts and their minds are distorted and even destroyed. And it's astonishing the blindness and the folly of those who are under her spell. They approve of things, and we go, wait a minute, what? How in the world can you not see how utterly self-destructive your life is and how this pursuit leads to an empty and broken life, and yet they are as devout and devoted in pursuing their idols as any Christian pursuing Christ with all his heart. It's astonishing. So here in verse 15, it tells us this woman uh, is sitting on many waters, and those waters where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. It speaks to her near universal influence across the world. This world spirit, this, this value system opposed to Christ that infects every man, woman, boy, and girl apart from the saving influence of Jesus Christ. So verse 3 tells us that she sits on this scarlet beast that's full of blasphemous names. It has seven heads and it has ten horns. We're going to address that in just a couple moments. But this is that beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, this and we've talked about this before, it represents those world powers that persecute the people of God that are opposed to Christ. And so there's, there's this interdependence, this cooperation between the beast and between the harlot. There's this wicked conspiracy they enter into against the lamb and against his bride as they seek to construct a false power structure and a false worship. Now, in John's day, scholars are pretty much in agreement that the beast is best represented by the Roman Empire. The power, the dominance, and the oppression of the Roman Empire, and the harlot is best represented, Babylon is best represented by Rome itself. The military might of the empire supports this, this luxurious idolatry of the city of Rome. And through the empire, the vile practices of Babylon are spread throughout the world. That was in that day. In our day, the beast represents any power that oppresses and persecutes the people of God. That can be communist China. That can be Muslim nations that put believers to death. And Christian, hear me. That can be our, in our own country as well. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But our country can function in that ways. 
and certainly in the future may do so even more. But Babylon is the great city that has dominion over these beasts. Look at verse 18. The, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Babylon is feeding the minds of these kings, is feeding the world powers and, and infusing them with a love for immorality and impurity and a hatred for God. Babylon doesn't conquer with brute force. It doesn't conquer with oppression and military might. It seduces with near irresistible attractions. That's why we read that the kings of the earth committed their sexual immoralities with them and that the people, the dwellers of this earth, were drunk with her sexual immorality. So Babylon points to every seductive influence that seeks to seduce people away from God. And that absolutely and certainly includes the materialistic and the immoral impulses that are running rampant in our own land. And I would say in countries where believers are suffering under the oppression of the beast, they're probably not as, probably don't need to be as concerned about the seductive influence of Babylon because their hearts are on such guard. So God's strategy in some places is oppression and persecution, and it purifies the church. But in places like where we live today, maybe there's not the kind of persecution and oppression others are experiencing, but there's that seductive influence as people become lazy, self-satisfied. They put their guards down and become increasingly seduced by the love of the world. People look to the power of their government that promises fulfillment, security, peace, prosperity. These, these beastly governments, these beastly powers promise all the fulfillment of Babylon. And that happens even in oppressive communist nations. People are loyal to that oppressor because they're hoping for peace and prosperity and worldly temporal security. Even in the most corrupt nations, there are those who yet believe that is a path to their pleasure and their prosperity. So, in verse 5, as, we, as we're looking at this, this prostitute, this, this, this Babylon, it says, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, here's another important contrast, isn't it? In chapter 7, we see the servants of God, and they are sealed on their foreheads with the seal of the Holy Spirit. And here we find, the, and in, in, in subsequent chapters, we see those who receive the mark of the beast on their hands and on their foreheads. And here we see the prostitute with this blasphemous name on her forehead, the Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, it would be nice if we could actually see those names, right? Okay, you have the mark, you have the seal. Oh, that's Babylon. I, I see it for what it is. It's right there on her forehead. It, it's, Satan is much more subtle than that. It's mysterious. It's hidden. But it speaks to her true identity. This, when you're tempted to be drawn into those influences of the world that says you can have it all and you can have it right now. 
that's coming from the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. It's a lie. It says further in verse 6, she's drunk with the, martyr, the blood of martyrs and the blood of the saints. In, in Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim, or Christian, and his, his, his companion, Faithful, come to a city called Vanity Fair, which is, I think, Bunyan's depiction of Babylon the Great. And it's a city in which every manner of prosperity and excess and immorality are practiced. And when Christian and faithful stand out in their refusal to enter into such excess and such impurity, faithful is arrested. And all manner of charges and accusations are brought against him. And faithful is convicted by a list of jurors whose names are creatively obvious of men of ill and wicked intent. And then faithful is taken. And they, they say, he is not worthy of as dignified a death as hanging. We must do the worst. And so they flailed him and, 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 and tore his skin, and then they burned him at the stake. Babylon is drunk with the blood of the martyrs and the saints. This is the vile influence. It hates God. It hates the truth. It hates righteousness. It hates those who love God and who love truth and love His righteousness. And while in some places they're not actively seeking to put God's people to death, there are other places where that absolutely is happening. And in fact, Voice of the Martyrs and others who have done research on this kind of thing have said more Christians were slaughtered for their faith in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries combined previously. It's getting worse, not better. As enlightened and as tolerant as we think our world is becoming, the impact and the influence of the beast is getting worse, not better. And the influence of, the, of Babylon, the prostitute, spreads like a virus. So John looks and he sees this, this image, this vision of the prostitute, and it says he marvels. He says, when I, when I saw her, I marveled with great marvel. Or you could translate it, I was astonished with a great astonishment. So that's the description of this woman that John sees. But secondly, I want us to look at the mystery of the beast and of the woman. The angel says in verse 7, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carry her. He starts with the beast, the one with seven heads and ten horns. And it says in verse 8, he is, he, the beast was and is not and is to come, which is a counterfeit of the description of the Lamb of God who, who was and who is and who is forevermore. And Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 17, says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And the beast counterfeits that. He was. He is not. And then he is once again. And in, in verse 8, it says, he is about to rise from the bottomless pit and, and go to his destruction. His counterfeit fools a lot of people for a period of time, but the Lord makes it very clear from the outset. His days are numbered. He is headed for destruction. Jesus is alive forevermore. Well, in verse 9, we read that 
this calls uh, for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. These seven heads and these ten horns. The seven heads refer to the seven mountains. Now, if you know anything about ancient history, you know that Rome was called the city built on seven hills. And so there's pretty much universal agreement that that is a reference to Rome, but that's not all the seven heads represent, as I'll show you in a moment. But, but Rome was the place where Nero instituted persecution of God's people. Peter and Paul were put to death under the oppressive rule of Nero, the beast. Most of the other apostles, John, I think, was the last one who, and, and probably the only that did not suffer a martyr's death, it possibly died of natural causes, although some, some traditions say that he, he was also executed. But Nero led this campaign against the church, against the people of God. And then for a time, that, that persecution subsided. It, he was, and now he is not, but he is to come not long after Emperor Domitian, Domitian came up, and he instituted a ferocious attack upon the church. That is the expression during John's day of the beast who was, who is not, who is to come. But that's not the extent of that expression. It's an ongoing pattern throughout all of human history. Persecution of the church, of the saints, it, it ebbs and it flows. There, there are times when the beast is at bay, but there are times he rises from the abyss and seeks to destroy the church once again. But as we'll see, he rises to his own destruction. The hymn writer says the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is his new creation by water and the word. The, the third verse, I love it, says the church will never perish. Her dear Lord to defend to guide, to sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Now, that, that line break makes us, it, it can confuse you. So, so, let me make sure you understand what he's saying here. The church shall never perish. That's one thought. Her dear Lord is with her to the end, and he's going to defend her, guide her, sustain her, and cherish her. That's what that line is actually saying. Her dear Lord to defend to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. The church built upon Jesus Christ will stand. The very gates of hell cannot prevail against her. Now, we read here that the dwellers on the earth also will marvel at, at the beast. Now, when John marvels, he marvels with revulsion. But when the dwellers of the earth marvel... They are astonished, and they marvel with adoration. Now, those dwellers of the earth, specifically, it says here that those are the ones whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life from the very foundation of the world. This is a description of the sovereignty of God and salvation. If you have been delivered from the seductive influence of this prostitute from Babylon, if you have been rescued from your sins and delivered into the family of God... It is because of the sovereign goodness and grace of our Lord. It's not because you're wiser or more virtuous or uh, 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 more discerning than others. It's because God from all eternity set his heart upon you. He chose you in Christ from the very foundation of the world. He, he as it were, wrote your name in the very Lamb's book of life. 
And then in time, the Lord Jesus took on human flesh, and he came to this earth. He, he lived a perfect life, fulfilling every particular of God's law, fulfilling that covenant of works that says, do this and live. He did this. He fulfilled all righteousness that we might live. And then he went to the cross, and he died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. Our sins are laid on him. His righteousness is given to us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us or in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then on a particular day, and some of you know exactly what that day and even that moment was. Others are like, I know it happened. I'm not sure exactly when in my life. But in a particular time, the Holy Spirit comes to you and he quickens you, he, he revives you, he brings you from death to life. And he takes this gospel and he implants it in your heart so that you repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus Christ. Those are gifts that he gives. It's not something you manufacture on your own. And then he seals you for the day of redemption. Our names were not written in the Lamb's book of life because we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God is sovereign in his dispensation of his grace to his people. And so here we see those who, who their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, and they're astonished, they're mesmerized by this harlot, and they're under the influence of the beast. We read in verse 10 that the, the beast has seven tens and ten horns. These seven uh, horns, or these seven heads, symbolize not only seven mountains or seven hills of Rome, but they symbolize seven kings. Look at verse 10. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other's not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now, verse 9 tells us we need a mind of wisdom to interpret the seven heads. This calls for a mind of, with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. We need a mind of wisdom to understand what the angel is telling us here. And it's interesting. Seven heads are seven mountains, but it's also seven kings. And some of the commentators point out there's some flexibility there about the symbols that are presented to us in the book of Revelation. But, but we, we read that five of these seven kings have already come and gone. They've already fallen. There's one who is currently, and there's one who is yet to come. And that, that one who is yet to come will only be around for a short time. Now, let me tell you, the interpreters are having a field day with these verses, right? And there are all manner of theories of what it might be and all these uh, 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 all these excursions into ancient history and into church history, trying to point to this time and this place and this government and this empire and this ruler. And I would dare say in that effort, many have demonstrated a decided lack of wisdom. I think the best explanation that I've read is that the angel in showing these, these kings, John in writing them down, is not referring to specific kings per se, but rather, he's, he's looking at this, this number of completeness, which is seven. It, it, it speaks of the power of the beast manifested through oppressive kingdoms throughout the entire scope of human history. 
And they come and they go. And many have already come and gone, and there's still some left, but not for long, apparently, whatever that might mean. From the perspective of God, God's timeline, the, the, the time is drawing short. Five kings have already fallen. One is currently ruling. Now, now notice that was 2,000 years ago, and one is yet to come, and he'll only be around for a short time. And then John adds this very interesting detail. He says in verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it's a, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. We have these seven kings. The beast is actually an eighth, but he's really not. He's, he's, he's part of the seven. Uh, he's ruling over the seven. He's in and through the seven. He belongs to them. What is John saying? Basically this. He's told us over and over again, persecution will resume. Be on guard. Be prepared. Be steadfast. It will arise once again. And the way we prepare is not by stockpiling firearms and ammunition, and it's not by building bomb shelters. It's not by warehousing food and clean water and other supplies to live on. It's not by growing off the grid. It is by being spiritually prepared to, engage, to continue to engage the culture and the world around us, even at the cost of our own lives, because they cannot take away that which matters the most. We're called to overcome, not by crushing the enemy or defeating the enemy. The Lamb's going to do that. We overcome by being faithful to the very end because His designs on you is to destroy you and to, to rip you away from God, and He cannot do it. We overcome by remaining faithful to our Lord. So we have these seven kings, but then we have these ten horns who are ten kings yet to come. Speaking of some future final uh, uh, conspiracy, as it were. Verses 12 and 13, please follow. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are one mind, and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. Now, this is the origin, I think, of this concept that we hear about so much about a one-world government, all right? Uh, I'm not real sure that's exactly what, what John is telling us here. Uh, but I recall back in the, in the uh, either the late 70s, early 80s, uh, a tremendous amount of emphasis on this is speaking of the European Union because there are nine countries and they only need one more. And then it'll be 10. And then we know the time is near. And sure enough, a 10th country joined. And that's it. That's it. This is the one world government. This is the time is happening. It's so close. And then in 1989, the Iron Curtain, or the, the, yeah, the Soviet Union fell. The Iron Curtain has dropped. And now there are 28 member nations in the European Union and five others who have applied for membership. Uh, and that warns us, don't interpret revelation by current events. Rather, interpret current events by the book of Revelation. Far more faithful to the Word of God and the kingdom of God. So we have these kings, these, these ten kings, and they have one purpose. Their unified purpose in verse uh, 14 is to make war on the Lamb. Now, there are those who say that verse 14 is the very theme verse of the entire book of Revelation. Read it. Think about it. They will make war on the Lamb, 
and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and, are called and chosen and faithful. I have said many times, the theme of the book of Revelation is that Jesus conquers all of his and our enemies and shares that victory with us. I think that's all summarized in verse 14. The kings of the earth will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. Why? Because He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. He is the King over all kings. He is the Lord over every earthly Lord. He will demonstrate once and for all His sovereign power, His absolute authority. Every eye will see, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll come to that to that again at the end in a moment, but, but, but let's consider for a moment. This is the fate of the beast. This is the fate of these puppet kingdoms, both in the past and also in the future. Satan will be utterly defeated. The Antichrist, the beast, will be crushed. The kings of the earth, earth will perish with him. That's the mystery of the beast. What about the mystery of the prostitute, briefly? In verses 15 to 18, the angel says, The waters you saw where the prostitute seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and language. She was seated, verse 1 tells us, on many waters, meaning her influence is extensive throughout the world. There's a contrast, if you recall, in chapter 5, verse 9. The worship given to the Lamb in heaven says, By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We find that the influence of the woman extends similarly throughout the world. Those that the angel identifies here in chapter 17 are those who are not ransomed by the blood of Christ. This vast multitude that will be lost for all eternity because they have been seduced by the prostitute because they have drunk the wine of her immorality. The seductive influence of Babylon has them in her grip and they are literally entertaining themselves to death. And then the angel announces something utterly astonishing. Look with me at verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, wait a minute. I thought she ruled over them, and she influenced the direction of their lives and their, their, their power, and, and that's true. She did for a time, but there will be a time when they will come to hate her. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. <laughs> this is not what I expected to read. Dennis Johnson said, when the dragon's worldwide web of wickedness starts to unravel, the harlot will be the first casualty. The woman, this, verse 18 tells us, is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. She seduced them. She deceived them. She turned them to the beast and against God. And a time will come when her deceptions and her empty promises will be revealed for as, for as the deception and the, promise and the emptiness that they are. She will be exposed and those who eagerly embraced her influence will come to despise her. They will turn on her and destroy her. And verse 17 tells us that their assault on the prostitute happens at the very instigation of of God himself. It says God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God is on his throne. 
He will use the very kings of the earth and the very beast, the the, the Antichrist himself, to destroy the prostitute Babylon. She'll be destroyed by her own supposed allies, and they, they will do that because God will put it in their hearts to do so. He causes even the wicked of this world to do his bidding. You remember in Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, Lord, your your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Why are you tolerating evil among your people? And he says, don't worry. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans in, and they're going to clean house. They will do my bidding and bring judgment upon my people. And Habakkuk's like, you're going to do what? And he says, that's okay, because I'm going to take care of the Chaldeans after that. Psalm 76 verse 10 says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. And like the armies of Midian in the days of Gideon, when the 300 blew their trumpets and and cried out for the Lord and for Gideon. And it says, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against his army. The 250,000 Midianites start slaughtering one another in their camp and run in sheer terror of 300 men armed with a torch and an urn. Pretty astounding. You know, it's it said that Rome was actually never conquered. Rome was not conquered from the outside. It imploded from within. All its luxury and its excess and its wickedness and its debauchery were its undoing. And God has carried out that kind of temporal judgments on oppressing powers throughout history, they implode from within in many cases. And it's, it's, it's a, an astounding thing to watch. But the day is going to come when there will be one final conflict, when the kings of the earth will unite together with the beast, the, the antichrist. They will make war on the lamb, and our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords, will utterly conquer them. And as their empire, as their coalition, as their axis crumbles around them, they will come to despise the very seductive influence that led them to oppose the Lamb in the first place. They will come to hate Babylon that led them to turn against the Lamb. But even then, as we saw in the previous chapter, they still will not repent. Well, what are you going to take home tonight? Just a few things. First of all, by all appearances, appearances, the world we live in is under the influence of Satan. The beast rules and persecutes people, the people of God throughout the world. Uh, the false prophet, false religions corrupt and lead people astray. Babylon seduces and corrupts cultures and people with materialism and with immorality. And the men of the world love to have it so. But hear me, God is still on his throne. He is still carrying out his purpose. The day is going to come when the lamb will conquer his enemies. And the Lord will actually turn them against one another. Because he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God of God the Father and we who are called and chosen and faithful we whose names are written in the lamb's book of life we will rule with him secondly in the meantime 
be on guard. Where we live right now, not so much against persecution and oppression, but more against seduction and deception. There are ministries that are devoted to the cause of the oppressed around the world, Voice of the Martyrs and others. But where are the ministries devoted to saying, look at what the world is doing to blind us to the pernicious influence of Babylon? 150 years ago, in our nation, there were sincere, godly Christians who were absolutely convinced that slavery was a blessing from the Lord. And you can read theology books of Reformed theologians that create, that that put together a biblical defense for the practice of slavery. And we look at that and we say, how could they be so blind? And I wonder if 150 years from now, if the Lord tarries, if saints will look at us, 21st century Christians in the United States, and the materialism, and the utter being consumed with entertainment, and pleasures, and possessions, and say, how could they be so blind? God, give us grace to see things from His perspective, to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Because where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. A man named Archibald Brown, he was a pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s in, in London. He actually was a friend of Charles Spurgeon's and succeeded Spurgeon as the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He wrote a little booklet called Entertainment, a Tactic of the Enemy. Now, that doesn't mean all entertainment is evil, but when entertainment and pleasures quenches our spiritual appetite, we are in peril. We may find ourselves even slipping into the grip of Babylon. And for us in Greenville, South Carolina in the year 2022, that's a much greater danger than the oppression of the persecuting beast. Let me close by saying this. God is on His throne. He is sovereign over all of the affairs of men, and He orchestrates all events and all affairs to accomplish His purpose, that which He ordained from eternity past. He's established that one day, all of those who dwell on the earth and who have opposed the Lamb, who have drunk the wine of the immorality of, of Babylon, they will they will see what utter fools they have been. They'll recognize that they have given themselves over to emptiness and corruption. They will bow and confess, but it will be too late. They'll realize that they've stored up treasures on earth, and it's all been lost. They've dug out broken cisterns that hold for them no water. They will discover what a deceiver Babylon truly is. And however disillusioned they will be, they will know that they've made that discovery too late. I want to ask you, are you in Christ? Are you feeling the attraction? Young people, are you feeling the pull and the attraction of the world that says all of this Bible truth stuff is really relative and, and, and we can carve out our own truth for ourselves? Or are you looking at the Word of God and saying this is true and this is life? And all of the lies being perpetuated in our day lead us away from truth and away from life and lead us into bondage and destruction. And I urge you, come out of Babylon. Be aware 
of the dangers of her seductive influence. And let's find our satisfaction, our hope, our joy, our treasure in Jesus alone. He is the fountain of living water.